Coming to you from beyond the veil, where anything is possible and nothing is beyond your reach, where time and space are figments of your imagination and life is but a dream. Bringing you the best and latest that human and non-human intelligence has to offer, this is Messages from the Multiverse with Ian R. Anderson, Certified Hypnotherapist. Thank you for joining us here at Hypnotropia in Encino, California for this episode of Messages from the Multiverse. We have a great show planned for you with a special guest who is a true master in his field. Today we are going to cover a really important topic which affects us all at a fundamental level, vibration. Specifically sound, but not limited to sound. Vibration is all around and within us everywhere we go. It can be harmonious and resonant, or it can be disharmonious and discordant. What we will come to see is that everything is vibration and the quality of our lives and experiences is dependent on the harmony or disharmony within us and all around us. This is true both at the micro and macro levels. Disharmonious vibrations can wreak havoc on the molecules and cells of our body, just as readily as harmonious resonances can uplift our emotions, facilitate healing, or bring a group of people together. While you listen to the upcoming conversation, Try and think about the many ways in which you have been affected by vibration. Have you ever walked into a room and immediately felt the negative energy hanging around because of one person's bad mood? What about how great your favorite songs make you feel? Or the excitement in a crowd as you count down to the beginning of a new year? Our bodies, thoughts, communication, music, art, intentions, technology, and our actions are all constantly either transmitting or receiving vibrations which carry within them information which is essential to the process of how we experience, interpret, and manifest our personal and consensus realities. On Thursday, February 11th, scientists published an announcement of the successful detection of gravity waves. Over a billion years ago, and over a billion light years from Earth, two massive black holes collided and combined releasing so much energy that the resulting splash through the fabric of space-time sent out ripples in all directions, which were detected by a set of sensors called a laser interferometer. These gravitational vibrations were then converted into a sound, a vibration, that we can hear. Einstein predicted these waves would exist over a hundred years ago. What is it about vibration that makes it so fundamental to the nature of reality? Without vibration, we have only void. Without polarity, we have perfect unity, but only within a nothingness that cannot be experienced because there would be nothing to compare it to, to say nothing of the fact that there would be no universe with sentient beings to observe the perfect thing in the first place. We are living in a sea of constant vibration, never able to remove ourselves from the great cosmic symphony so we can try and see the bigger picture. We are forever immersed in it and a part of it, insignificant yet at the same time instrumental in the creation of this reality, since according to quantum physics nothing really exists in physical form unless an observer is there to interpret the signals, the vibrations, flowing in through their sensorium. Let's see what our guest has to say about all of this and how it relates to his understanding of sound. Lee Spusta is a behavioral scientist hypnotherapist, and certified therapeutic imagery facilitator specializing in the use of sound frequencies to produce deep, relaxing trance states. His work has become internationally recognized, enjoyed by thousands around the world. 
He has worked with several therapists in Los Angeles, producing a variety of therapeutic audio CDs, and has been hired as a consultant and producer working with companies in the United Kingdom. He also works with HMI College of Hypnotherapy and the American Hypnosis Association as director of media production. Lee combines his talents as a musician and his knowledge of hypnosis and related states in an effort to pioneer new approaches in creating rich, resonant soundscapes for greater efficacy in healing and meditative products. Lee is the developer of the proprietary cymatics, therapeutic approaches and technologies. Besides his cymatics, hypnosis and meditation music, Lee also specializes in vibroacoustic sound therapy, bioresonant sound healing, metaphysical energy work, and shamanic trance work. As a production specialist, he provides services to other therapists, educators, and specialists, which include but are not limited to brainwave entrainment and coding, cymatics entrainment compositions, bumper music, vocal recording sessions for guided meditation, hypnotherapy, or therapeutic imagery recordings, and complete album production services like editing, mixing, and mastering. Okay, so we have Lee Spusta here to talk to us about his cymatics, hypnotic, and meditative music. Thanks for being here with us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. So um, cymatics is a really interesting name. Why don't you tell me a little bit about where you got that name, what it means? Sure. So it is a play on words. As I know, you know what the science of cymatics is. Uh, that is how sound affects matter, mm -hmm. and so how frequency and vibration and resonance impact uh, solid objects or, or even gases or whatnot. And experiments with that through running frequencies through either sound or water have produced some interesting results in terms of uh, patterns uh, that are almost three-dimensional in nature. And so you get a, a sense of there's form within sound or that sound can produce form. And so that, that was something that was, has always been quite interesting to me. Um, and then <clears throat> I did a kind of a twist on the spelling. So I spell it P-S-I. M-A-T-I-X. P-S-I, we know is Greek for the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's kind of how sound affects the mind and the body. Okay, so um, would it be fair to say then that um, cymatics would be best listened to with speakers other than headphones so that you can get the, the mind aspect and the physical body aspect of the sound's effects? Well, for those people that have it, like a home theater that has a subwoofer or something like that, you're going to get more bang for your buck, so to speak, because the vibroacoustic or the low frequency um, sounds are going to be able to travel through the floor and into your body, actually vibrating every cell in your body. I designed them that way on purpose for those people who happen to have that option, mm -hmm. um, but they're also designed to work perfectly well with headphones or even just on a regular speaker system. But anybody that has a chance to listen to this stuff and actually turn the bass up, uh, even if you know you're laying on the floor, uh, it allows the the frequencies to travel through you, and it literally you feel it all the way down into your bones, and the physical relaxation and the dumping of stress that happens with that uh -huh. is is pretty profound. It allows for a deeper state, but again. Um, it's kind of an added benefit. It's not like that's how you have to listen to it. Headphones is fine. Regular speakers are fine. Okay. Yeah, in episode two, uh, the, the guest and I actually talked a, a bit about how the water in the body can be affected by 
um, language, intention, sound. So I'd like to kind of follow that thread a little bit sure. and um, just uh, maybe discuss a, a little bit of, of what the effects on the body, on the way we feel, our emotions, our, our organs, our circulatory system, etc., uh, would be from having those geometric shapes, those forms resonating inside mm -hmm. of us. Sure. Um, immediately I have kind of a multi-pronged answer. Let's see if I can keep my mind on target with it. Uh -huh. uh, the first is early on <clears throat> when I was first kind of discovering what kind of methods I was going to end up using. Uh, I spent a lot of time with a friend of mine named Barry and he used to play didgeridoo. Mm. And he would use it as a healing and trance inducing instrument. Uh -huh. And while he was playing it, he would, he would do it over a person's body. And of course that person's able to feel the vibrations right. within them. And what's interesting that, that he was able to tune in intuitively while he was doing that. And he considered the, the sound that was coming out of the didgeridoo as kind of a carrier wave mm -hmm. for this process of, of being intuitive and kind of honing in on what was going on with, with the client. And almost like a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of an interesting thing for me to watch him do that. And I ended up kind of taking some of what I walked away with and putting it into my methodology that not only <clears throat> are the frequencies themselves mechanically doing something, and there's a harmony that we're able to um, bring into the, the body, mind, consciousness. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we're, we have tension that we're holding on to, or we have blocks, or we have uh, disharmony going on. Mm -hmm. And so when we provide something that's just very harmonious, our body starts to match into it. At the more it's vibrating with it, it kind of lets go and blocks free up and um, consciousness can shift. Um, but I think there's that added level of intention, just like what your friend might have been talking about with the language. Yeah and how the sound is, is a vehicle that has a mechanical effect, but it's a vehicle for an intention. Uh, that intention, for all I know, when I'm making it might actually get encoded into it for that listener, I don't know. But I certainly know that all of us have an intention for why we're deciding, I need to take some time, use some music that's gonna help me get into a relaxed place, uh, expand my mind, whatever it is. And so that intention will take over in a way that you don't have to worry about it. Maybe it's the higher self, maybe it's something else that we can't name. But I think there's an intentionality that when we go into it, um, <clears throat> it's, it's synergistic. Yeah, okay. Well, I had, a, I had an opportunity um, probably 12 years ago to uh, speak with Dr. William Tiller, the physicist, mm -hmm. um, and his work has actually shown that intention can be used to imprint information directly onto digital chips, onto storage devices. Nice. Um, and not only that, but uh, actually in, in the conversation that we had, he said that... Um, I could use my intention to imprint your t-shirt if I wanted to. And mm. that the research that they've done has shown that, that really intention can be stored or programmed into any physical object. Right. So, uh, and in the form of inf information 
stored into a program of some kind. Mm -hmm. uh, they were using it to alter the, the pH of water and, and samples in Petri dishes um, for the, the treatment of infection. So I think that, uh, that you're, there, there's probably a good amount of information out there now, research that would say that your intention probably does get recorded with the, uh, with the music. Um, and, and even if, um, if it's not recorded directly onto the, the music track itself, it's, it's probably transmitted in some other way. I mean, there's, there's definitely an, an underlying energetic quality to our communication and right. um, just the world around us in general. So with your music, which I'm a user of, I actually use it in um, pretty much every one of the recordings that I make, um, you, you mentioned synergy and you have several synergistic ingredients that you put into mm -hmm. your music. Um, so why don't we just uh, maybe take a couple out of those, um, maybe the most, uh, the most well-known or the, the most important ones, whatever you think are the most important ones. I'll, I'll just start out with the hemispheric um, synchronization mm -hmm. that was discovered by uh, Dr. Robert Monroe. Is that right? At the well, Gateway Institute? Yeah, he didn't discover it. He didn't? He was the first one to take it and <clears throat> work on packaging it in such a way that other people could listen to it. More of a oh, product. Okay. So um, there were a, a couple of developments um, as far back as 75 years before he even started doing anything uh, in regards to uh, binaural beats. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, late Victorian age, they, they discovered binaural beats. Wow. And then it really wasn't until the 60s, until people, um, uh, a guy named Atwater was really influential and he definitely worked with Robert Monroe. Um, that's when a lot of the research kicked up again because uh, stereo equipment right. and audio had become kind of widely available. Yeah. And so that was definitely the start of it in terms of um, products that would reach the, the general public. And so very briefly, um, binaural beats are generated by taking two entirely separate, separated distinct tones, one to each ear. Let's say you have 100 in the left ear, 100 cycles per second, and then you have 150 cycles per second in the other ear, the difference being 50, so you have a binaural beat that's operating uh, at 50 cycles per second. Now, if it weren't for your brain that was in the way, there would be a natural rhythm. We wouldn't call it a binaural, we'd call it a monaural or a heterodyne beat. Um, it's just like when you throw two pebbles in the same pond, the overlapping ripples. Like uh, an interference pattern? It's an interference uh -huh. pattern. And so that that frequency, since we do have gray matter in between our ears, our brains know that there's supposed to be a beat there. Mm. Uh, so it synthesizes it. And that's what gives us the hemispheric synchronization because both the left and right hemisphere have to work together and through the corpus callosum they're comparing notes to figure out what that frequency, uh, frequency is supposed to be. And that's why it's a good frequency following response technique as well as it does create a balancing of the two hemispheres so information can flow more freely back and forth. Ha having said that, I don't typically rely on that technique um, because the one thing about it, you have to use headphones for it to be most right. effective. Um, whereas if you use a monaural beat, or which is another word for a heterodyne beat, um, it still has the entrainment capacity, the frequency following response still occurs, and in fact it occurs actually a little bit stronger. 
And so I do, with some recordings, use that in the, in the way of either an isochronic tone, which is sound on, sound off, or it's something that modulates to a frequency. Mm -hmm. That's one form of creating an artificial monaural beat. Okay. Or um, by carefully looking at the actual frequency and note values of what the composition is, you can create, um, I refer to them as organic beat rhythms within the music itself. Mm. And you're still going to get uh, rhythms that can be entrained to. And then I always use wide stereo imaging, because believe it or not, that's all it takes to get a hemispheric synchronization effect. Mm. So if you listen to uh, Pink Floyd on headphones, uh -huh. you're probably still going to experience some hemispheric synchronization. Okay. So I use those techniques. Um, so that that's all under the heading of frequency volume response that mm -hmm. we as organic beings naturally do. Aside from that, I'm always using the vibroacoustic tones because I think that that vibration, that low vibration, it's just like a temple full of monks chanting. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something to it that just comforts the body. It, it helps us to release the stress and just, it's a deepening. It's just simply a deepening experience. Um, and the final thing that I, I typically will do is look at having a, a good harmonic spectrum. So <clears throat> what I mean by that is that the, the texture of the sounds that we're using, I want them to be frequency rich because it's almost like with white noise uh -huh. or listening to ocean sounds, the reason that people are able to kind of allow that to kind of move into a more and more relaxed state, the reason it works is because it's so frequency rich mm -hmm. that somewhere in there, our brain waves are going to find something that works to resonate with and kind of just move into it. Um, but when we work with more uh, selected frequencies, then we're able to direct those brain waves with more efficacy than just white noise. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, anybody that's using white noise is probably encoding artificially some sort of rhythm to entrain to. Huh. Um, and uh, one other element that people might think is interesting, and this is pretty much the last element that I generally use, is a psychoacoustic element. And that's when you use uh, sounds, textures, or, or sound effects, or certain melodic structures that elicit a response in the listener that has a either an emotional or, or a mental response to it, mm -hmm. uh, much in the, in the way that a film score is put together. Right. You know, the, the music or the sounds cue you to what your experience should be. Kind of a, a new, like a, a, an emotion evoking type of that, approach? Exactly. They're evocative sounds. Uh -huh. And so the last recording I just did, which uh, I've given to you, uh, Solar Infusion, uh -huh. I relied more heavily on a psychoacoustic approach so I chose textures that give the impression of light shimmering, oh, okay. um, or just uh, sounds that elicit that sense of the warmth of the sun. Of course, it helps after I've given the suggestion. Right. You know? So there's an intentionality. The listener has an expectation already that it's oh, it's solar infusion. It's a journey of illumination and bathing in the sun. Mm -hmm. After that, then they're kind of. Uh, selectively suggestible to the concept of sounds that might stimulate that idea. Uh, but that, that's what I mean by that. And so it's kind of a cohesive approach that I, I use. I don't rely on just one thing. Okay, so you're, you're um, kind of aiming at a 
psychological, um, spiritual type, spiritually type of soothing approach, but at the same time, you want your music to have a beneficial effect on the body as well for yeah. anybody who has any type of need that they want to get out of the use of your music. Right. Okay, so um, knowing that uh, a lot of recent experiments have demonstrated that certain vibratory tones can be used to help the cells of our body, like our organs, um, return to a more balanced, healthier state, uh, what are some of the ways that the vibroacoustic tones that, that you use designed or created in order to affect us in a beneficial way. Do you have that, that in mind at the time when you make the recordings? To a degree. Um, uh, I'll answer that in two different ways. Um, one, the brainwave entrainment methods itself, aside from the vibroacoustics, um, typically I do target some sort of a, a state, whether it's alpha, theta, or delta. Okay. Each of those has its own capacity to, to bring us into a state where there are certain um, neurochemicals that, that are more likely to be released in the brain, uh, endorphins or, or uh, restorative um, chemicals that, that support the renewal of cells and you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. um, so that's already that. But with the vibroacoustic frequencies itself, because we're literally vibrating the physical cells of the body, it's not just information that's going into the ears and turning into an electrical signal that our brain interprets and things happen. Mm -hmm. It's mechanical, you know. Um, and so you're able to dial in a precise frequency and cause that vibratory response, and then there's a resonance that occurs. Mm -hmm. And so if we know what the resonance or the frequency signature is of a healthy kidney, for instance, then when somebody is either laying on the floor where you have a subwoofer that's driving those frequencies or a sound table, which I have, I built a sound table in 1998, mm -hmm. um, then you're allowing the body to tap into that frequency, to start to match it, and over time resonate with it. And what's interesting is after the music dies out and the frequency stops, and it's just silence, the body's still vibrating. I've called it uh, residual oscillation. Okay. For about five minutes, you still feel that buzz in your body that is at that kind of frequency. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, I haven't done any scientific study on that particular effect to find out, you know, indeed what's going on, if that's a psychological thing, is it the nerves um, that are excited are taking time to calm down and normalize, I don't know, but it's a fascinating thing. And so the real key is working with scientists and doctors to find out those very precise frequencies, mm -hmm. and with each individual person, there are going to be variations. And so it's a little tough to create a blanket program for people right um, and so I, I see that as something that the medical field is going to keep moving into however what we can do is understand frequencies that are more general to relax the muscles you know that's the easiest thing for us to do with vibroacoustics okay I mean it's the same as if you know you go to a masseuse and they actually take a vibration device mm -hmm. and they you know maneuver it over your the back muscles that mechanical vibration is actually what's producing the release of tension, it's loosening up the muscles, so you're really getting that same effect, it's no different. 
Uh, and then aside from that, it's once things start to loosen up and, and relax, then you can get into the concept of call it chi, call it prana, call it energy, that when things loosen up, the energy flows. Mm -hmm. And when energy flows, um, obviously life force gets redistributed in the body and it can harmonize, but also you might become more aware of where you might have a block. For right. instance, there are times where I've experienced laying on the sand table, running a vibroacoustic track through it. And then my awareness is not necessarily pain, it can be discomfort, but just your awareness can be moved to a specific area. And, you know, and the more you look into it, you're like, huh, am I holding tension there that I didn't know about? Mm -hmm. Or is it a body syndrome? Do I have an emotional uh, block or resistance to, to resolving something and my body is kind of holding on to it in some manner? So it's interesting. You can kind of tune into things in a different way, having that uh, platform or that support of that consistent vibration. Okay. And so I found that to be interesting. Um, so that, I think that sums up kind of how I would answer that. I think as we go forward, we learn how to test a person, each individual person, to find out what frequencies we want to deliver that mm -hmm. are going to have a harmonizing and health uh, benefit for them. That's going to open up a whole new era of you know healing medicine. Okay, so um, yeah, that is really interesting, and that that makes me wonder um, whether there could be uh, an approach to kind of help the general public or public spaces, people who are in public spaces, to um, be in a more harmonious state of mind. Um, because I, I mean, you're you're aware of the the less than lethal or non-lethal weapons that have been created mm -hmm. using sound mm -hmm. um, which I would uh, say is probably on the other spectrum uh, the other side of the spectrum from what you're doing which is using sound to create positive reactions and sensations right. and experiences um, so it, it stands to reason that directing your type of sound waves at people would probably um, have an opposite effect on the people who are receiving that vibration, mm -hmm. it, it makes me wonder, um, you know, what what type of effect we might have on something like the inner city or um, schools with violent, with you know, overcrowded schools with a lot of violence or prisons for that matter, uh, or even just general public places where people gather um, yeah. to be sending out positive vibrations and resonances instead mm -hmm. of. Uh, you know the the kind of pollution that we have surrounding us all the time in in big cities, um, right. dump trucks, freeways, sirens. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, obviously, yeah. The 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 type of sound environment that we get when we're in clustered areas where there's a lot of different things going on. If you analyze that sound, you look at it and it's it's disharmonic. And right. people are, you know, they tune it out because we're used to it. But that doesn't mean that it isn't having an impact, yeah. you know. It's like, if you sat and actually listened to nails on a chalkboard long enough, it's going to aggravate the heck out of you and probably adjust your, you know, neurochemistry in such a way that you have a stress response, obviously. And so we can kind of do the opposite by 
um, delivering sound that in its essence, in its core, is delivering harmony itself. And which is kind of a distinct difference between music and harmonious sound. Because music has a structure in it that sometimes it can have a positive impact, you know, or a positive effect. Mm -hmm. um, such as Mozart, you know. There's something about, he was, maybe it was just intuitively so mathematically and harmoniously, you know, aligned that he came up with these perfect melodies and perfect rhythm structures. And when we use Mozart to study, it's, it's one of the highest things people recommend. Music therapists say, definitely use Mozart if you're going to study, you know, um, for babies. Mm -hmm. You know, you've probably seen that product, Mozart sure, yeah, for babies. We, we used you know? it, yeah. Yeah. So there's something to music that you can find when you look for certain elements that um, you're able to impart that sense of harmony and we can internalize it and how it affect our, our, our physiology and our psychology and, and um, our mind. But nonetheless, if we deliver sound that in and of itself moves past the idea of melodic structures, melodic structures are judged by our mind. Mm -hmm. We either like them or we don't like them. We anticipate there's a change coming up, you know, all those little things that, that we're used to in popular music create an arousal, an arousal response. There's an anticipation, mm -hmm. you know, that's neither good or bad, it's just what, it's what it is. Um, but when you use long segments of stretched out sound, it doesn't mean that the notes don't change and there aren't intervals or, or melodic structuring that goes on. But they're not the kind of melodies that you're going to whistle to. They're more stretched out and their purpose is different. Their purpose is to impart harmony mm -hmm. or to produce an emotional response on purpose so that the, the listener can move more deeply into an, a relaxed state um, and can experience the harmony for themselves. Because when it comes right down to it, harmony is mathematical. Right. You know? When a system is in balance, mathematically, it is in harmony. Um, and that is really the process of sympathetic resonance, which was discovered back in the late 1700s by uh, Christian Huygens. He was a prominent astronomer. He was in his workshop. He had a hobby of working on clocks. And so he had some pendulums that he had made. And, you know, he put two of them on the shelf next to one another. And just you know, randomly, so they, the, the pendulums were just swinging randomly, you know, uh -huh. as he walked away. And when he came back two hours later, they were moving in perfect unison. So he discovered sympathetic resonance, whereby um, the vibratory oscillations of one part can affect another. And in a system, ultimately all the parts of that system are going to want to move into balance and harmony and synchrony because energy flows there's no resistance it actually takes the least amount of effort or energy within the system to keep it going so life on on this planet operates along those principles our bodies we operate on those principles mm -hmm. and so if we can give somebody um, something to help put them if we can give somebody something to help put them back into that natural state of being in sync and in resonance and harmony with themselves and the world around them, we're doing people a great service. Because our lives, you know, that's the one human malady we have is we're, 
real good at, you know, getting ourselves into things that get us stress, you know. Right. Yeah, and so speaking on the, the geometric and mathematical nature of sound, um, specifically harmony, um, that can be translated into physical form also. Uh, I know the Greeks, the, the ancients, they would encode those types of um, harmonious ratios and, and relationships into the building of their, their temples and their, mm -hmm. their structures. Um, I've also heard that if, uh, that if we were to make our own mattresses into uh, you know the, the shape or the, the, the ratio of, say, the golden mean, um, that just by being around that type of harmonious structuring that that would impart a more harmonious sleep on us that just generally being around the more um, balanced shapes and forms uh, brings that natural resonance into our body and into our mind um, I mean you can everybody's had the experience of being in a bad mood and then being around somebody who's in a good mood and, and not necessarily even needing to talk to them but just suddenly you feel a little bit better mm -hmm. uh, just because their energy kind of brings you up. I think that's that's probably uh, another example of sympathetic, was it sympathetic resonance? Yeah. Yeah, how that can um, be imparted from, from one person to another, from, from a pendulum to another. I think that's really fascinating. That's uh, probably one of the main factors that play when we get out in nature and away from the disharmony and the noise of mm -hmm. the city. Um, when you make your music and uh, the the soundscapes that you make for um, you know meditation and all that, do you try to replicate the structures that are found in nature, or do you bring in your own type of approach? I'm not directly mimicking, or or I'm not necessarily looking at. Um, the patterns of bird song and mm -hmm. trying to translate it necessarily. Um, I've had occasion to introduce or to utilize actual live recording of um, birds, crickets, or ocean waves or things like that. I don't rely on it that much, but you know, sometimes that's what's going to make the recording what it needs to be. Um, I kind of rely more on on the the sound texture itself. Um, and how when you introduce a change in that, let's say two, any two tones, mm -hmm. the way they work off of one another, um, creates yet a third, uh, a beat frequency like we talked about earlier. Yeah. And to me, that's more where, if you want to call it the magic is, okay. is in those, um, the textures and how they evolve when you move the frequency against the other frequency in a harmonious fashion. Um, and the only thing that I would say that that's akin to the type of frequencies that are going on in nature that make us feel like we're getting back into balance is uh, I'll use the Schumann resonance mm -hmm. sometimes, which it's basically a low alpha yeah. uh, brainwave. So I'll use that. Um, but what I find to be really interesting, actually, and I, you would know about this as, as being a hypnotherapist, is, you know, the idea that 
uh, when we want to bring somebody into a hypnotic state, uh, it's relative anxiety versus depth. So in terms of the induction, we want to kind of increase the arousal or, or the stress response just a little bit. Right. By bringing them up a little bit over what's been normal for mm -hmm. them, then when we give them the opportunity to let go and release and relax, and we know that they're going to go below their baseline, mm -hmm. there's an analog in music for that. It's okay. tension and resolve. Okay. Resolve is when the sound, the two notes together sound like they're perfect. That's why I have the perfect fourth or perfect fifth interval uh, for those that understand a little bit about music terminology. But um, it's, you know, when you, you know when you hear two tones that sound like they're perfectly aligned, it doesn't have to change. It's yeah. in sync, it sounds great. And when we move outside of that, maybe one, one note up or two notes up, we're creating a tension. Okay. It's usually a pleasant thing. You, you, can, <laughs> you can find a way to make it unpleasant. Uh -huh. But, you know, in a musical sense, we're trying to make it pleasant. But it's that movement that creates that little bit of tension in each type of tension that we experience between different intervals and in a relative context gives us that cueing emotionally to like, oh, you know, maybe that's a cue to relax a little more or maybe that, hey, that sounds like adventure to me, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it stimulates a process in our mind, you know. Yeah. And so I play with those little shifts of the tension, but I always bring it back to resolution. And that resolution is that state of being at peace. Okay. And uh, so I think that's a critical difference that, that people making this kind of music or, or choosing to listen to it should pay attention to. If, you, if you're going to listen to something that might be just branded as New Age music, mm -hmm. you're not likely to get this type of result. Um, I've noticed that. You know, yeah. it's a little too prosaic and it stays in this happy place mm -hmm. or, or it's very predictable it's really more music than it is soundscape or textures yeah. for healing or trance or meditation and so that that's kind of a distinction that i would ask people to pay attention to it's really yeah that's where the magic is it's just in that creating the tension and the resolution and that's that kind of determines the listener's journey as they go along okay i can tell that you definitely put a lot of thought into what you do um can you talk a little bit about your process and that that comes into play when you're actually putting together a score or a track? Do you plan it all ahead of time, or do you kind of freestyle a little bit? How does that work? Do you do you record one and one track and then overlay it with another one, or do you um, have somebody who helps you? How, how do you do that? Um, yeah, I typically do it all on my own, okay. but it depends. It's not just one set way, but I guess uh, what some of the most common approaches are is the first thing I realize is uh, a concept. Mm -hmm. You know, like this last thing, solar infusion. It was just an idea. I thought, hey, you know what? It's winter uh, right now, and people could probably use more of that flavor of sunlight in their mm -hmm. lives. And then I already had it. Once the title Solar Infusion hit me, I'm like, okay. And it gave me kind of the template that I was aiming for at that point. Okay. Um, and so from that beginning point, what I'll do is I'll sit and just kind of go through ideas and listen to different sound textures and see what speaks to me. Um, and it's from that point that it either goes one way or, or another. 
it's either going to go in a way where I feel like, okay, I need to plot this out um, and determine, you know, how I'm going to work frequencies into it, um, when critical changes might take place, and things like that. Um, or it really becomes entirely intuitive. Okay. And I'm just in the space and I, I might lay down, um, often I'll lay down the vibroacoustic mm -hmm. um, tone first because it's, it's, pretty much the most unchanging element in a track. Uh -huh. And so once I just lay that down, I determine how long do I want that to be. And now then I'm just using that to bounce other sound on top of basically. Okay. And so that's where you get your tensions. You just, that's all it takes, you know, the bare minimum. Your one bass track or low frequency track. And then you can call it a melody track let's do that for the sake of it even though again we've talked about it, it's really just moving through tension and resolution mm -hmm. but it's that that secondary line is just riding on top of that that steady vibroacoustic track okay and i'm in the zone when i by the time i get to that point you know and yeah. i'm just using my intuition to determine when to make a change what note to change it to um so it, it's largely intuitive in that sense um, unless, like I said, I've already predetermined structuring that needs to be there for the purpose of it. Um, after, after that, that's really kind of the main structure of it. Then it's just adding elements to, to sometimes it's just to keep it interesting, you mm -hmm. know. Um, uh, but there might be moments where you want to spike alpha or beta frequencies so the person doesn't just fall asleep too right. quickly. Yeah. Um, there are these different elements I look at to keep it moving. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't get stale. Uh, and then after that, it's if I hadn't already um, thought it out ahead of time uh, to where the, the, the beat frequencies that are in it naturally are already going to have the, uh, the desired entrainment result. Mm -hmm. If that's not the case, then I might encode an isochronic rhythm or do some sort of, sort of pulse modulation, something to create a beat frequency that the brain can entrain to. And, and really, unless you're really scouring and really trying very hard to find it, you're not even going to notice it's there. It's, right. it's not meant to be something that's, you know, I hear that rhythm. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's your brain knows it's there, and that's all that matters. The, but our personal experience is just to enjoy it, you know. Yeah, that was going to actually be my, my next question. Um, you know, is it is it necessary for a lot of the these frequencies to actually be audible to the person who's being affected by it or can frequencies you know either below or above first the audible range um, can they have an effect on us also and then can um, sounds below and above the volume of audible range can they affect us also um, in a either a subconscious or a conscious way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think largely we're conditioned to pay attention to sound and music in a certain way that um, we're not totally tuned into everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, the biggest point I can make on that is the interaction of any two tones. People might they hear a harmony. They know that the two tones are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And maybe the more you're an aficionado of, of music and really taking it in, or you're a musician, maybe you listen a little bit more to 
the, at that interplay between the two. Yeah. But even then, we're 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 likely to notice the the gross element of that, the obvious. But there are subharmonies and subfrequencies and beats and, and rhythms, and then those. You know, let's say you have two different beat frequency or harmonics mm -hmm. that are existing. You know. Math tells us that as those also interact, we get yet more frequencies. Right. You know. Yeah. And you can't possibly pick up on all of that. Um, but in addition to that, even the most subtle uh, modulation in a sustained sound is something that uh, our ears will register it in terms of the frequency information that turns into electrical responses in our brain. It's there. Mm -hmm. And it's there just enough for us to kind of do the frequency following a response. It doesn't have to be at, at that level of volume that we notice it. Right. It's just like right now, there's probably a frequency sound coming out of air conditioning or something. Mm -hmm. that I'm certainly not aware of it until I decide to really try. But it's it's like that, but even more so. Yeah. It's it's under that. Uh, it's a sub threshold of awareness. Okay. But it you know, has an impact. And uh, that that entrainment uh, quality that that really only takes about a couple of seconds for that to take place, right? Especially with the brainwave pattern, I think um, the the research that that I'm recalling um, had to do with drumming. I think it was it was something about three to six seconds was all that was needed before the the average person's brainwave pattern started to entrain on the rhythm coming mm -hmm. out of the drum. So that really kind of shows that in a sense we evolved and to to kind of entrain we we yeah. evolved in a world full of frequencies and messages and we kind of evolved to pick them up subconsciously consciously biologically it's just kind of what we do yeah we're similar to a musical instrument i guess in that way mm -hmm. um, or maybe even a transceiver um yeah, or we take and we we take in and put out sure. frequencies, um, which is really fascinating. It's it's uh, no wonder that um, you know crowds can kind of lose control at a, at, at certain times, or crowds can um, create unbelievable shared spiritual experiences. Yeah, that's one thing that, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that that's one thing that Stanislav Grof. Uh, the one of the kind of creators or co-creators of the transpersonal psychology field um, was really interested in studying was spiritual emergence in groups and you mentioned being in the zone mm -hmm. uh, when when somebody is in the zone time kind of slows down things become really clear but at the same time people observing somebody in the zone can have that same experience as well mm -hmm. Which is really interesting if you if you think about it, you know the, the that's kind of a consensual reality shift that's taking place in the physical world because of something that's going on inside of one person who's right. performing some kind of act. Uh, I know I'm asking you to speculate on this, but from sure. your point of view, what does that mean? Well, um, it is sympathetic resonance. Yeah, you know, and I think the more harmonious the the state that uh, that a person is holding the stronger it is 
Okay. You know, let's say the amplitude or the volume uh, of what they're emitting of their experience, I think, is stronger than the dysfunction or the disharmonious energy that somebody might happen to be having. It's attractive, and, and just by being in the space of somebody that that is more in tune, uh, it, there, there's kind of a, a sense of entraining to that person. And so I do think that that's what happens with group consciousness, and not necessarily just with positivity, but we can have group consciousness where large groups of people jump on board of a concept that really isn't all that great, too. Right. Maybe it's hate-inspired or something. So yeah. you can entrain in ways that aren't necessarily that positive as well. But um, Or how about um, women that spend a lot of time together, their menstrual cycles seem to sync up, mm -hmm. you know? It's not like they sit around talking about it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's like you talked about earlier. Maybe there's a, a, a kind of a bad mood going on, but then you see a good friend who's in a good space, and, you know, it just takes a matter of moments, and you, you feel lighter. Yeah, and the, so I think that that's a reality we're in training all the time you bring up something really interesting even the word menstrual uh, has to do in a sense with entrainment because women originally entrained on the pattern the frequency of full moons right? which itself is uh, a wave uh, and not only that but the moon and its fluctuations of distance from the earth creates its own wave pattern which it imparts onto the oceans which then when we're in proximity with the oceans that also has an effect on us so it, it's really fascinating how this is kind of um, something that it, it seems like is a fundamental part of the way reality is structured that's what's interesting about it is um, going back to Christian Huygens uh -huh. and how he discovered sympathetic oscillation or resonance, whichever. You know, he noticed it with pendulums. They're not alive, right? From what we can tell, they're they're physical objects. So they're physical laws of the universe. Yeah, but they also show up in a biological sense as well. You know, and then we have circadian rhythms, and we have all these different things. And then the lunar cycles uh, certainly have an impact on us. And so really it's, it's a large system of frequencies that are interacting and creating these different beat frequencies. And it's, it's these rhythms, the more they're in a sustained harmonious state, the more stable it is. Yeah. And I certainly think our solar system is an example of like sure, what it took yeah. to have just the right conditions to be sustained in a way that allowed life to develop here. Mm -hmm. Is, is a, I don't know, it's a clear example of, you know, if, if our solar system was exhibiting more of an entropic kind of energy pattern, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. That fact seems to support the biocentric model of physics or, or quantum physics or the biocentric model of cosmology, that the universe exists, was created, etc., um, to be filled with sentient conscious beings. The, the conditions are so, um, they're just right, so that living beings can exist within this, uh, this universe. One of, the, um, one of the interesting facts, which doesn't really have a whole lot to do with sound, um, is that uh, the, the fact that water becomes less dense when it freezes. Mm -hmm. um, most other fluids, most other objects, actually I think 
there are probably only a couple other um, materials that become less dense when they freeze. Most become more dense when they freeze. And had it been the opposite, had water been one of those things that becomes more dense when it freezes, like it, pretty much everything else in, in the universe becomes cold, the motion of the atoms slows down, slow down so then it, it becomes more dense. Well, if that were to have happened, the oceans would have frozen solid from the bottom to the top, uh, which means that the ice wouldn't have floated during the times when there were ice ages and mm -hmm. wouldn't have been able to insulate the water below to hold the warmth from the earth, which right. kept our, our oceans fluid and kept the planet from freezing solid forever, yeah. um, which is what allowed life to be sustained through long periods of freezing. Um, you know, these, these little tidbits that seem to suggest that the universe is tuned in a certain way to be um, kind of uh, supporting to life yeah. You know, that, that seems to, that seems to really support that type of thinking. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, sacred geometry is another thing that, um, which directly connects to sound and music and, yeah. and harmony, uh, which really, I think supports that, that concept and looking at the way living organisms are structured, the way that, um, cells multiply from, from like a fertilized egg. Um, showing the, the geometric structure that, that is reproduced every time within a, a healthy fertilized cell that, that starts to reproduce into a fetus. Mm -hmm. um, these kind of constants in nature um, really seem to say that this is a living universe. So yeah. that being said, um, you know, since this is messages from the multiverse, the, the kind of um, assumption that I'm starting the show off with is that uh, humans aren't the only ones listening to this show. Humans aren't the only ones present in this in this universe or in right. this multiverse. That there's many layers to reality, most of which we're probably unaware of. And uh, when I say layers to reality, I mean um, there are theoretical models to to support the idea that there may be. An infinite number of parallel realities, called mm -hmm. universes, um, maybe existing within a billionth of a millimeter of each other, which right. never fully interact or never really touch each other. Um, but gravity um, is believed to possibly be one of the things that might be able to travel between those barriers. Mm -hmm. um, gravity itself, uh, you know, is a fundamental force of the universe. I think that um, it might be possible that that information encoded in sound uh, could be transmitted as well. What do you think about that? Is that something you've thought sure. of? I think that the one constant, no matter what we're looking at, it might be speculation, yeah. but is vibration. Right. That um, in this particular material universe that we understand, uh, and in whatever other types that there might be. I think that the constant's going to be vibration, vibration uh, frequency, uh, amplitude, modulation, resonance. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think back to... Um, it's a religious book, the Bible, but let's look at it from a slightly non-religious standpoint. First in Genesis, what does it open up with? The beginning... God said... God, the, the Word of God. Yeah, you know, let there be light. Yeah. And so we have two concepts, you know, the Word of God and light. 
Uh-huh. So sound and light. And of course the word is sound with intentionality, you know? Um, but then you go to um, the book of John. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's John or First John. In the New Testament. And it's kind of reprising that, where it says, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was the light of men. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's really a kind of a sacred teaching in that, talking about that's what the universe is. Yeah, that's what creation is. It's it's vibration and intention, and so form comes into existence around the template of the, the the vibration that has that intention and then through means of resonance things are attracted and start building up and I think that there's you know the microcosm and the macrocosm concept mm-hmm. we look at the smallest stuff that we can now look at on a subquantum level mm-hmm. there's still pretty much certain principles at work of you know uh, little neutrinos or whatever they might be now that the smallest particles or whatever they are yeah. they're still like orbiting around some sure. some other yeah. item and then you keep building it out cells yeah. are structured in a similar fashon and then our solar, solar system, system and then galaxies, galaxies all clusters it. yeah it really seems that the, the as above so below uh, way of looking at things <clears throat> excuse me seems to um, have been something that the the ancients really saw clearly mm-hmm. And they, they saw that clearly without the benefit of what we would consider modern technology, which is really fascinating because that kind of uh, lends me to believe that, that they may have had another way of observing reality, mm-hmm. another way of, of gathering information that um, maybe could have had similar results as our scientific approach, yet had a completely different means of creating or gathering that information. Um, the ancients themselves, uh, specifically the Egyptians, they, they talked about the, the, the phallus of Osiris um, being the, uh, a symbol for the, the generative force. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the original phallus was lost and there was a golden replica that was created to replace it. Okay, I've heard that golden replica be referred to as the word om, uh, because the original word was lost, so we were given a replacement, the word of creation, which is the the sound om, which when resonated creates all kinds of shifts in our consciousness. Um, That can be extended out to not just sound, but really to the uh, the idea of that of frequency itself, and how we we live in a, in a, in a universe that has a um, kind of double sided coin reality to it. I guess you could say there's the the particle side, there's the energy side, and right. things seem to be able to shift from one to the other, especially on the small level. But there have been experiments that have shown that even something that's visible to the, to the naked eye can be caused to be in two places at one time. Um, now, that kind of creates a, a vision of reality in my mind that says, uh, you know, maybe reality is what we make of it. 
maybe it really depends on on us as conscious beings in our consensual understanding of, of what we're experiencing to create reality on whatever terms that we see fit um, which kind of then leads me even further into the proper use of vibration and and that you know the ancients they they used it at least some researchers suggest to uh, affect the material world in, in many different ways, whether it was using sound or resonance off of crystals in some form, shape, or, or another, uh, but to do something like levitating stones or to uh, make matter change forms like the alchemists um, talked about, which they had their, their esoteric meaning and the exoteric meaning, mm -hmm. uh, because to impart a shift onto something else requires a shift within yourself right. and especially even at least the belief that it might even be possible to even go there to even try and put yourself in the, a state of mind to where you can accept that type of thing yeah. but the alchemists themselves believed that reality could be shifted that that uh, matter could be changed now do you believe that consciousness and matter are able to interact in that way and if so how can sound be used to help us improve our experience of the world okay um i think on on one level you hit upon something that that makes sense to me in terms of consciousness and our perception of the world and uh agreements mm -hmm. that we're all socialized to take on certain agreements and much of the time, uh, when kids are young, when they have experiences that are kind of outside of that box mm -hmm. or don't conform to yeah. to this reality that everybody else is agreeing on, they dismiss it or they oh you're just you're just your imagination is acting up or whatever. It's we're, we're conditioning is yeah. to let go of that idea that we can shape the world around us or that we can tune into things that um, operate in another sphere, whether it's ghosts, past lives, or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that that's a binding force. Uh, the agreements that we're all sharing uh, shape our perception. And if we could get in there, <laughs> inside ourselves, and start to at least temporarily suspend the agreements, mm -hmm. uh, I think that that's the realm of where some mystical stuff really starts happening. Yeah. And then in addition to that, then we go back to the idea of sound, and now instead of just using words sound, let's just go back to vibration, mm -hmm. because sound is just one way we perceive vibration. Right. right? So, um, vibration itself, it, I have the sense that when we're talking about multiple realities uh, or universes that might exist, I believe that even right here in my hand, whatever that is, there can be multiple realities mm -hmm. that share that same so-called space but it's in different phases right the, the you shift the phase or the the uh, vibratory or frequency signature enough then it maybe tunes into another channel on the tv so mm -hmm. to speak so right now we're on channel two for all we know there's so many other channels and when we're watching our tv the tv doesn't move or going anywhere right it's but somehow we're picking up entirely different signals and and shapes our entire experience for the next two hours of whatever we're watching yeah. and so i think that that analogy plays out really well in terms of consciousness and vibration and sound and but certainly the suspension of these 
uh, agreements. The agreements that, oh, you can't do that. Oh, that doesn't match reality or whatever. Uh, where I, and I think that's where the idea of moving into altered states of consciousness really are key. Uh, because as long as we're in our normal kind of beta-driven, critical thinking mind, mm -hmm. we automatically reject things that don't match the agreements. Yeah. And if we can move and expand into deeper states of consciousness, I think that that's when, you know, we kind of suspend the agreements enough to start exploring, well, what, what can we do as beings with intentionality and awareness? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so what you're saying is that um, when we spend too much time in the daily consciousness, we, we tend to block out a large part of reality. Um, I, I kind of see that, that many realities model in a, in a similar way, and I see, um, I see the internal world, the world inside all of us, as being equally as vast, if not um, equally as complex as well as the universe outside of us. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I kind of wonder what, whether the ancients um, meant that as above, so below um, phrase to be as multifaceted as um, I think it is. Um, you know, looking up into the sky and seeing those patterns and, um, you know, seeing those, uh, those visions that we, that we see when we look into the sky repeated. Um, down on the earth and in our experience, that's one thing, but also seeing the universe outside of us and the universe inside of us, uh, especially with with the ability of our, our mind and our brain to produce an experience of reality. Uh, you know, just take dreams, for example. Right. Our dreams are, when we're dreaming, our, our brain and our mind, you know, we're, we're creating, we're generating an experience of a world that as as far as we can see, uh, doesn't have any physical reality. Uh, we're not leaving our bed and going into um, another universe where we're awake while we're asleep. At least we don't think we are. So our our brain is generating a physical experience, a, an experience that seems to be as real as any waking experience. Mm -hmm. um, yet it's doing so while we are consciously asleep yeah. so you know i think that's i think that's really fascinating and and that kind of um that, that kind of brings us uh, back around to that idea of us being uh, our bodies are our beings being a transceiver and that i think so yeah i think that's i think that's really fascinating do you think that our nervous system um is is our nervous system really the key? Is understanding our nervous system the key to understanding how we take in and give off signals? Or is that just one aspect to our being? Do, do you think that there is... Um, do you think that consciousness is within the body or is the body within consciousness? Based on that, that, that's my question to you because the way I see it is that the universe is within consciousness that consciousness is really the fundamental force here mm -hmm. and that it, it's what unifies all things, which is why um, I think that the physicists in our world have, have been unsuccessful at obtaining their unified field theory. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that they have been ignoring the most important thing, uh, which is 
you know, not anybody's fault. It's kind of like the fish missing the water, you know, because, and, and trying to understand its reality without realizing that its reality is water. Yeah. Uh, because it's in it and it's hard to see something when you're in it and, right. and it's impossible for us to remove ourselves from consciousness to view it from the outside it's like understanding the brain by looking through the brain um, it, it's an odd type of approach but it's the best that we have there's nothing else that we can do um, to kind of change that but string theory uh, you know in, in its attempt to unify the forces into a unified field theory they, the, the creators of string theory took a musical approach to their understanding. And I, the, I think the, the four or five physicists involved in that, um, I think all of them were musicians, or at least a few of them. Um, and so, you know, their, their idea of energy and particles being different vibratory states of these cosmic strings. And, um, you know, I, I've heard Michio Kaku uh, refer to everything from subatomic particles to the universe itself as being a scale kind of as uh, from from the smallest individual notes on the subatomic scale to the universe itself being some kind of cosmic symphony mm -hmm. and um, you know that not only gives uh, a beautiful image to the universe and a much less random image and a, a much less accidental type of type of uh, um, portrait to the universe that um, then then a lot of other physicists have kind of given it over the you know past couple hundred years um, that that takes that takes us from the billiard ball type of model of the materialists to a much more informationally informed type of consciousness and imbued universe where information and and vibration seem to be the most fundamental thing and everything kind of comes out of that and when you get relationships like harmonies then you know you get objects that stick together you know as we can see you know there really is nothing separating my body from the air around it or even the chair i'm sitting on other mm -hmm. than the electrical field that my coherence. body itself is giving off the coherence that mm -hmm. is created when fields around atoms are share sharing electrons um and you know I'm, I'm even able to breathe in and incorporate the air around me into my body and then breathe that those gases out um, mm -hmm. after I've used them up which is kind of uh, another interesting vibration because our breath itself is a vibration it's rhythmic. and the uh, you know that that kind of musical approach to understanding things and understanding the universe seems to indicate that balance and coherence is what our universe does. Um, you know, the, the conservation of energy, the, the laws of, of thermodynamics, and all of that seem to indicate that the universe auto-balances itself and that, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what it does. And that indicates to me, again, a biocentric model. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that? What do you feel about the fundamentalness of consciousness in the universe and its ability to recognize patterns to pick up and send out frequencies and um, exactly what that means about something like music and sound which itself requires a sentient being to understand and process the sound to turn it into sound otherwise it is just a vibration otherwise it is just energy true uh 
I, yeah, I, I do agree that, um, yeah, I guess we, we hinted at it before, that I think the underlying principle in the universe itself, whether we're looking at the physical universe or any other model that, that you can come up with, I think the constant is uh, vibration and the, and the idea of um, cycles and resonance and things having sympathetic resonance mm -hmm. and uh, the idea that form like you suggested if you have a um, incoherent pattern it it, it it falls apart yeah there's nothing to keep it together and so what's what's the thing that's really keeping all of these different objects in the room and your body from you know spilling out onto mine and all uh -huh. this stuff what's keeping everything where it's at it's coherence it's it's that on a very micro cosmic level you know we have our atomic structures and whatnot that are doing this oscillatory dance of uh, in a system of where the 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 particular frequency is maintained and the, the rhythms and then other parts that interact with it might be a different frequency but there's uh, the, the type of harmony that between them that allows that system to keep going mm -hmm. you know it's not the nails on the chalkboard otherwise it would fall apart yeah. or it would be like the singer shattering the wine glass the structural integrity can't maintain itself it just isn't going to it'll mm -hmm. break apart and then we build out from the atomic into the cellular you know and then from that and so on and so on and so on I just think that that it's it's the same essential concept that is just you know <laughs> different layers of the onion as we mm -hmm. look in deeper you know we find that you know what it's the same basic underlying thing yeah. and then when we look at the idea of consciousness itself um, to me it's that's that whole idea of intention or and there are some um, some people that even use the word intent to describe the force of the universe, mm -hmm. that it's intent because it intends things to exist, it intends form. Yeah. It's that one element that, that imposes the order or determines the quality of, of how patterns will develop and then hold those forms. And, um, you know, and what's fascinating too because uh, it's something you touched on that, that links in here, is that idea that uh, there are certain indigenous groups that, that held that um, the reality that we experience in dreams, and they might qualify the types of dreams that they're referring to as uh -huh. dream time, for instance, with the Aborigines right. or whatnot, that the, you know, the powerful dreams where you're having a significant experiment, uh, experience or perhaps you're traveling out of body mm -hmm. or you're very lucid, that they consider that to be a more true form of reality than after they wake up. Right. You know, when they wake up, that's like, oh, okay, we're just going through the thing where we all agreed to do this part. But, yeah. you know, when I go into dream time, that's when it's the true reality because thought, word, and deed all coalesce into an experience right away. Mm -hmm. and, you know, things manifest immediately. Yeah. And you can ex express uh, an experience, uh, reality in, in an un um, unparalleled manner. And it all boils back, back down to the same thing. Um, that interface between consciousness and vibration or intentionality
and vibration. And so I think when we look at solid objects, you know, or planets and such, I think that's the exoteric mm -hmm. expression of harmony. Whereas, you know, those same alchemists would speak of a divine harmony and this more esoteric or unseen layer of the universe, uh, this guiding principle that imbues form and beauty and uh, understanding to, to, to the entire uh, aspect of existence. And so I think if we're going to unify anything in terms of a, a theory, I think it has to, has to include those elements. Yeah. Vibration and consciousness and intentionality. Okay, so in, intentionality and consciousness, um, when, when you kind of, when you combine those into the model of the universe, um, it, it really seems to be as though matter and the universe itself has an intent or an intentionality to know itself. Mm -hmm. To, uh, I mean, Terence McKenna put it in in one way. He said that that matter is seeking to perfect itself. And I was talking to someone today about the double slit experiment in quantum physics, where you can um, prove that um, in in some way. Now, my, my terminology is going to suggest a consciousness in this, this uh, context, but the, the photon that you observe in the double slit experiment seems to know that it's being observed. Right. At the moment when you observe something, its wave function collapses and it either becomes a particle or a wave. Um, up until that point when it's observed or even measured by a computer or an instrument of some kind, which... Um, itself seems to say that it's not just conscious beings that can have an, an observational or a, a wave function collapsing effect on, on a particle or a wave or, or a wave particle, but that even a non-thinking device can collapse that wave particle and that, or the, the quantum wave function, and that the wave function uh, seems to, it, it goes from the smallest things to the biggest things. A, a star itself has its own wave function or its own quantum wave function and um, that goes up to you know that goes from subatomic particles through beings through animals rocks crystals um, all the way up to solar systems galaxies the universe itself and I'm just uh, that that makes me kind of think that that maybe the universe is constantly observing itself because one question that people pose is uh, why doesn't a uh, distant star that's not being observed by a sentient being, why doesn't it just disappear into a cloud of uh, quantum fluctuating en energy or, or some, you know, go into some parallel universe like a particle will um, or a, a virtual particle when, when it comes and goes from its uh, vacuum of space, you know, they, they come, they appear and they disappear and they go somewhere else and no one really quite knows where. Mm -hmm. But I think that, uh, that, Really, if, if we are to believe that something only exists while it's being observed, that that must indicate that the universe does seek to understand itself through observing itself, that matter does want to know itself and perfect itself through this process of evolution. Um, otherwise, what would be the point to all of mm -hmm. this? 
we're always gonna ask that question and until we meet you know yeah. the big guy in the sky or right. whatever uh, we're gonna ask that question but <laughs> I think that that makes a heck of a lot of sense to me you know yeah. that uh, or it's another indicator that that is another another way to suggest definitely that there's an observer mm-hmm. uh, consciousness itself or the universe or whatever you want to call it um, and you're right it wouldn't make any sense what's the point without a purpose of some sort yeah. so um, I mean it makes me think of Robert Monroe Far Journeys did you read that that particular book yeah you know to me it was just an excellent excellent read yeah and because he was asking some of those questions mm-hmm. and in his context he was traveling out of body right but he was meeting up with uh first he saw humans that that were newly departed and like they were kind of just going through the motions of you know getting debriefed and then yeah. here now we now we're going to get you set up for a new uh human experience and whatever and it's kind of just and you know until you learn your life lessons you're going to keep doing this kind of thing yeah. and then he would talk to some other uh, ascended beings uh, who even knows if they were once human or not but he was able to learn how to communicate with them and um he, he his perspective continued to get broadened and broadened until they were kind of echoing that idea that mm-hmm. uh, the entire purpose of consciousness is that we're all part of the same consciousness and the the creator if you will or it's like we're like we're like cells in the body of the creator yeah and we're all seeking not only to to perfect ourselves perhaps but to have experience mm-hmm like the whole point of the universe is it to me it's almost like boredom it's like i exist yeah okay well how can i make that more interesting you know if i put some random elements in there uh, if i have to you know cut myself in half and autonomize that other half at mm-hmm. least now there's an, a random interaction and you know um yeah. i can learn more by by means of relativity right. here and there and and uh, us and them and uh, whatever mm-hmm. level yeah, you want to go to. That's the uh, that's the kind of the, the principle, the belief that um, is uh, part of the Upanishads, the the Indian, um, the the Hindu scriptures. That uh, originally there was one thing, but that one thing was very bored by itself, right. really not getting a whole lot out of its existence. So in order to make things more interesting. excuse me so in order to make things more interesting it sacrificed part of itself to make something other than itself Mm -hmm. and in doing so gave rise to polarity uh, which itself is indicative of vibration you can't have vibration unless you have two poles for something to vibrate between Um, so the peaks and the valleys yeah yeah so that that uh being true itself um, does indicate all all down the line the the relativeness of the reality that we live in the relativity of the reality that we live in that uh, without it there would just be that ultimate state of perfection which is uh, in a lot of ways very boring um, because nothing ever changes right and if nothing ever changes um, how can anything be experienced yeah. So that's really fascinating. And I, I think that, um, well, I know that the, the interview that we've had, the time we've spent discussing this, has added a lot to my understanding of how 
reality ultimately functions. And I know that uh, everybody listening got something interesting out of this, uh, this, this show. I really want to thank you for being here. If there's anything else that you'd like to say or put in before we end the interview, I want to give you the chance to do that, sure. as well as to take a moment at the end to tell everyone how they can access your work um, through your website, email, whatever it is, that, that, however it is that you w- would like to be contacted. And I know that your website has a store on it um, mm-hmm. uh, where, where they can buy your work. So I'd, I'd like you to take a minute and tell everyone how they can do that. Sure. Uh, well, first, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's been, it's been, been a, a fun discussion and uh, delving into the, the layers of the onion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fun that also through these kinds of discussions, it's like I can back engineer and, and feel more fully understand uh, my purpose and my work and why I end up doing what I do. You know? Yeah. Um, but definitely glad to, to get this recorded so that we can share these ideas with other people and mm-hmm. it might resonate with them or at least sponsor a new thought that yeah. they didn't have before. Um, uh, but definitely people can can go to my website which is hypnosismeditationmusic.com and, and I have uh, boy at this point about 22 different recordings uh, some of them have some guided imagery and hypnosis mm-hmm. but largely they're music and so you know I try to just come up with different um, avenues to, to getting into I guess a similar state you know want to mm-hmm. help people to if nothing else, help them to, to release the stress they're holding on to and to be able to relax and, and expand their sense of themselves a little bit. Um, and then after that, really, their intention is going to play a large role. Mm-hmm. If they want to discover some insight to something that is going on with them in their lives, you know, that kind of space is conducive to having a different, higher perspective. Uh, if they want to go on a healing journey, it's a great backdrop and support mechanism for that. Um, self-hypnosis, meditation, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as people might browse the products, they'll see different things that, that um, through the descriptions, you'll find out kind of the range of experiences that each one's designed for. But uh, yeah, I invite people to go on there and have fun checking it out. And um, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And uh, Great. Yeah. Well, I can I can say um, you know through first hand hand experience uh, with your your work that it does greatly enhance the relaxation process. It adds a whole new layer to what I do as a hypnotherapist, whether it's straight hypnosis or imagery that I'm doing or um, teaching my clients breathing techniques. Uh, self-hypnosis which I don't teach a lot of people but the people that I do teach it to the ones who I who I feel are disciplined enough in their thought process to be able to do it effectively um, they all have commented on the deepening the relaxation and the the general just positive shift that they experience from the music that I play here in at, at Hypnotropia and Encino um, you know, and since I've had this location, this, this new office that I've opened, I have, um, incorporated some new things that I wasn't doing in my previous location. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is the fact that I'm using your music in almost every session. And 
I do it with uh, with a speaker that I installed behind the recliner nice. that kind of wraps them in the sound and does allow those vibrations to come through the chair mm -hmm. and vibrate them from below, which I think um, is, or I hope is creating a similar effect to the vibrations coming through the floor that you um, oh, talked about earlier, exactly it, yeah. especially the fact that, that the chair is... Um, that it has springs in it that themselves will vibrate. Sure. Um, and, and that's something that I have experienced myself in, in my recliner, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And it really does, um, and, and I'm telling this to everybody listening for their own benefit so that they, um, you know, if they have the desire to enhance their meditation or enhance their therapeutic practice, that this stuff really does work. It's very effective. And there's really something for every occasion. There's the deep delta um, stuff for really deep relaxation to keep somebody maybe in a lighter state but really open to imagery. There's something like the Mystery of Pythagoras, which mm -hmm. I use a lot, which is a really great one. Um, and with your permission, I'd like to maybe put a 30-second to 45-second sample of one of your tracks. Please do. So that everyone can hear it. Which one would you prefer me to use? Mm. Uh, boy, take your pick, man. Um, Solon Fusion I like because it's new and it's, it's kind of excited about it, so uh, maybe people might like to experience a little bit of that. Okay, yeah, since you talked about it in, in the episode, I think that would be great. And, um, you know, give people a chance to hear what you do. I, th I think if they go to your website, they can hear a sample of some other stuff as well, right? Yeah, because uh, Solar Fusion itself isn't uh, on the website mm -hmm. yet. It's scheduled to be on there in a few weeks. Um, I, I launched it first through an affiliate of mine um, where I do distribution with a company called iAwake. So they've released Solar Infusion. So if people really want to get it, if they check my site by the time they listen to this and they don't find it, they can go to iAwake. Okay. Uh, but nonetheless, it's going to be released uh, in a few weeks from when we're recording this. And um, But other than that, I, yeah, I have uh, one minute samples of just about everything that's on there. Okay, great. Well, um, again, in, in case anybody missed it, uh, it's Cymatics, P-S-I-M-A-T-I-X. This has been Ian R. Anderson, Certified Hypnotherapist, with Lee Spusta, Certified Hypnotherapist, and Sound Engineer, Creator of Cymatics. So um, from Hypnotropia in Encino, California, and to everybody out there in the multiverse who's listening, thank you for joining us today. If you think you or someone you know would make a great guest for Messages from the Multiverse, please contact us at messagesfromthemultiverse at gmail.com. If you wish to contact me directly regarding my hypnotherapy or shamanic practice, educational presentations and workshops, or speaking engagements, you can email me at ian at hypnotropia.com. That's I-A-N at H-Y-P-N-O t-r-o-p-i-a dot com you can also learn more about me this podcast and hypnotropia by visiting the website www.hypnotropia.com that's h-y-p-n-o-t-r-o-p-i-a dot com messages from the multiverse is available for subscription on itunes and apple's ios podcast app on your mobile devices and can also be found at soundcloud.com or on the soundcloud app for your smartphone or tablet or at hypnotropia.com we're going to end the show today with a sample of lee spusta's solar infusion
Until next time, honor and love yourselves, your fellow humans, and our planet. Be well. <laughs>